today on Act News Daily. And that's determined just off the self crisis that we have in the future weeks. We're not always going to be the highest out there, but we're definitely not going to be anywhere near the lowest. We're buying good quality cows. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Agnews Daily Podcast, joined by Ashton Carr and Mike Pearson. Ashton, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. You sound pretty excited yourself. Are you having a good day? I'm just feeling upbeat today. I don't know why. Gotcha. I'm not going to question it, though. <laughs> yeah, you get a good day, you just roll with it. I tell you what, it's all we can do. That's right. That's all you can do, Mike. Well, you know, we have a really fascinating interview coming out later today. I'm excited to get the chance to talk about beef processing and how the industry might be shifting as we look ahead to the future. So stay tuned for sure. But before we jump into it, Delaney, what stories are you keeping an eye on today? Well, this one hit me just not very long ago before we recorded the podcast today, and I thought it was kind of sad or, you know, a little scary. But for those Farm Bureau supporters out there, we just received word today that American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall has tested positive for COVID-19. He's in home at quarantine and said he's feeling strong, but yeah, he uh, is not doing so hot when it comes to the COVID. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, American Farm Bureau issued that same. They said that he was experiencing symptoms, which is what uh, made him go get tested. But it doesn't sound, at least according to the statement, as though he is, um, you know, doing too poorly. Fever and cough is what they said, but uh, otherwise he's doing okay and he's going to stay in quarantine. Yes, he will. Where is where you should stay, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you get this virus, we got to knock it in the head because we continue to see this outbreak spreading. We're now seeing headlines shift the focus from increased cases in a number of states. I think now we're seeing increased cases in 36 of the 50 states. But now the focus is not just looking at cases, it's looking at hospitalizations. And we're continuing to see some consumer pullback, even in states that aren't reinstituting, you know, measures of lockdown. I know some states are closing down bars and, you know, sending restaurants back to half capacity. But across the country, we're starting to see hours cut. Um, We had a company out earlier today release reports that their hourly schedules through their website, and it's, I cannot get my computer to open, so I can't tell you what the company is, and I apologize if it opens, I'll share the name later. But these uh, hourly workers, they're seeing hours cut back again, and that is having an impact on things that impact agriculture, namely... Ethanol. Earlier today, we got the weekly ethanol production numbers, and it was essentially flat with last week. We had been on a nice uptick in ethanol production. We'd been seeing the grind grow week after week. We had seen mileage increasing. And this week, we did see production tick up. It ticked up just about 140,000 barrels, which is a drop in the bucket. We went from 900,000 to 914,000. And it's just slow. Going forward, we're still down almost 13% from a week, excuse me, from the same week a year ago. So ethanol is still struggling. We need to get folks out and driving. And to get that, we got to get this thing under control or at least get people feeling confident they can go outside. Absolutely, Mike. uh, I'm glad you brought up some ethanol news because I have some ethanol headlines myself, but not in America, over in Germany. So Crop Energies is a company out of Germany, and it is expecting higher ethanol demands as lockdowns ease in the European 
in the European Union, excuse me, Crop Energies Ag is one of Europe's largest ethanol producers, and they said earlier today that the demand for bioethanol will most likely recover as coronavirus shutdowns are progressively letting up in the EU, meaning people are going to, of course, be using their cars more frequently again. And Germany and other European unions um, are required to blend biofuels with gasoline to reduce pollution, so decreased fuel sales during strict lockdowns dominoed into a decrease in the ethanol demand. But crop energies, I thought this was pretty interesting, increased the output of ethanol for disinfectants while the demand for fuel collapsed earlier this year. All right. Yeah, finding new ways to use corn, I tell you, it's uh, it's good. You know, we've got anti, uh, not antibacterial, hand sanitizer and that sort of thing. But yeah, got to get people back out driving for sure. Delaney, what else are you watching today? Well, I don't think people are going to be eager to go out driving as we continue to see a heat wave roll across pretty much the entire country, especially those folks kind of right in the middle of the country, starting with uh, Nevada stretching all the way over to the Virginias into the Northeast. But we are going to be seeing a hot spell here over the next week and beyond like some of the hottest temperatures we've seen in five years so um temperatures of 90 plus degrees over the next 13 to 16 days and the hottest weather since 2012 now i am not a meteorologist uh So I am not an expert on any of this, but I'm just thinking, you know, hottest weather since 2012. If you think back to 2012, we had a really bad drought, which led to some really great commodity prices. So I'm not saying any of that is going to happen and it's still too soon to tell, but I don't know. That does set itself up nicely to suggest that we could see some of that happen. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we're definitely seeing a little bit of a weather premium come into the market. The big difference, from my understanding, between 2020 and 2012 is subsoil moisture this time of year. Mm, okay. You know, 2012, we, we had the corn in the field in March because there was no moisture and it was dry all the way through now, which really cooked the crop. This time we had adequate moisture, in some cases surplus moisture, that kept the topsoil really in good shape from a moisture you know, profile perspective. Now we're cooking the crop. Now the question is, okay, we're going to have sporadic sporadic thunderstorms. Where are they going to hit? Who's going to get those million-dollar rains? And, yeah, I mean, the corn market turned around. We were down overnight as that storm system swept across North and South Dakota and parts of Minnesota. But now, Delaney, like you mentioned, you're looking at 104 degrees during pollination. That's not ideal. No, certainly not at all. I think uh, I was talking about this last night with Blaine and we were I can't remember what he said now but yeah when you have really hot temperatures like this for pollination does it affect yield I can't remember what he told me he'd be mad at me if he knew I forgot yeah well you know I think we all understand that uh, you don't listen to us when we talk Delaney I do too well I tell you what the market is listening to inflation fears inflation generally supportive of commodities but we definitely see the start of inflationary scares when we look over at gold, the gold market has been on fire as coronavirus both scares people and wants to they want to put their money in a safe haven. Gold is certainly a good store of value. And traders are looking out at all of these countries globally 
printing massive amounts of currency, finding new ways to lend and growing global debt. And their concern about, you know, basically too many dollars in the system is taking root. They're trying to get a hold of a secure asset that will appreciate. And they're turning to gold. Gold today, right now, as we're recording this, the August contract is trading at 1819. We are $100 below the absolute peak of the gold market set back in 2011. It has risen 40% in the past 14 months. So if you have been a gold bull, it is certainly paying off. And, uh, you know, expectations are that this thing might have a ways to go. And if inflation really does become a specter, and it has not been for 20 years, inflation hasn't been an issue. If it starts to tick up, we could probably expect to see some of that enthusiasm for hard assets move into ags. I don't know if it'll come this year or next year. All kind of depends on how this COVID situation plays out. This darn COVID is ruining everything. Well, unless you own gold, now you're forty. Well, I suppose. Mm, yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I am out of news. Ashton Delaney, either of you have other stories? I don't. I do not either. A little bit of a slower news day today, Mike. Well, I tell you what, it is not slow in the wheat pits. We saw the mm-hmm. dollar crater earlier today. We saw both Jordan and Egypt issue tenders for purchases. Wheat is on fire. Corn and soybeans a little bit more muted, although they did come well off the lows on day. In the corn market, July was up three and a half cents at 348 and a half. December up one and a quarter cents to close at 353 and three quarters. Over in soybeans, the July was down half a cent at 894 and three quarters. November down five and a quarter, finished the day at 597 and a quarter. In wheat, Chicago contract July up 25 and a quarter cents, finished at 517 and a half. December up 20 cents even to close at 522. Looking over at livestock, that bullish sentiment did not move into the meats. August live cattle down 85 cents at 99.15. October down 67.50 at 103.50. In feeder cattle, the August contract down 87.5 cents at 84.05. September down 65. Close the day at 135.67 and a half. Lean hogs also seeing a little bit of weakness. The July down 47.5 at 44.05. The August down 92.50, finishing up at 47.95. Jumping over to the dairy markets in class three milk, July up again today, rallied 23 cents to finish at 23.67. The August up a penny, closed at 21.51. Without further ado, let's discuss the beef market and how it might be shifting as we go forward. Hey guys, when I'm not hosting Ag News Daily, I'm actually helping out with the Iowa Farm Bureau's Spokesman Speaks podcast. If you're from Iowa, you're probably familiar with the Spokesman newspaper. It has the largest readership of any ag newspaper in the state. The Spokesman Speaks podcast is an extension of that newspaper, reaching farmers and ag professionals like you on the go with the stories that matter most. This week's episode features discussions about COVID-19 relief that's currently available to farmers and the additional federal relief that could be on its way in the coming weeks. Yes, I know that all of the COVID-19 stories blend together after a while, but this is your chance to hit the reset button with the latest updates. Which relief options are still available to farmers and what's on the horizon? For those answers, you'll have to check out the new podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Spokesman Speaks podcast in your favorite podcast app or go to iowafarmbureau.com slash podcast. 
Well, today on the podcast, we have Jeremy Robinson, who is the managing partner at Republic Foods. Now, Jeremy, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background with Republic Foods and what you guys are doing? Well, we acquired the facility back in October of 2019. Uh, This is the newest constructed beef packing house in the United States. Before they were doing some lower numbers, uh, somewhere around 100 head per day. We have the operations now at uh, right around 300 head per day, and we're looking to take that up uh, by the end of the year, be around five, 600 head. It is just crazy to see how quickly the small time locker or processor is making its comeback here during COVID-19. Tell us a little bit about the experience or maybe experiences you're still feeling here with COVID and the supply chain disruption issues with having some of those big guys shut down, big players shut down. You know, Ashlyn, we were fortunate. Uh, we have had still to date, knock on wood, but no COVID cases at our plant. We took some preventive measures in the beginning and really focused on doing some social distancing, wearing masks and um, items like that. Now, customers have really been uh, coming at us. I'm sure they wish that we could be producing, you know, twice of what we're producing today. But, um, you know, the market's been strong. It has been slacking off a little bit. We produce mainly lean trim. Uh, we're uh, processing class B maturity animals. So we're producing mainly what goes into hamburger uh, with a few variety cuts that come off of that. Um the demand's still there. We are seeing the price come off with the heat wave going across the United States right now. We're expecting some of those cattle prices are going to come back down with it. So it's just been getting busy and getting after. Well, Jeremy, you know, I want to dig into the business model a little bit because for folks who have been involved in the beef industry, we've continued to see consolidation. And when we talk about consolidation, the defenders rush in and say, well, you got to have a huge processing plant. You got to kill a thousand head a day in order to make any money. And yet here you guys are making out a niche and growing. Talk to us a little bit about how you're able to make that work in this environment. It's efficiencies. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I mean, this is reverse manufacturing. Instead of putting something together, we're now taking uh, the cow apart. And you have to be on top of your game as far as every little detail on spending. Uh, the, the Probably the main difficulty for a lot of the even smaller than us packing houses is having the proper food safety and quality assurance that goes along with providing wholesome, safe beef. So you have to have that team in place and they're not cheap. I mean, creating a HACCP plan, putting your SSOPs, your critical control points in place and that food safety team, you know, it, it, it costs money. So you have to be efficient, uh, but it costs more money to have a recall. It costs more money to have to send beef to a cooker because it's not processed properly. So those are musts that have to happen. So when you're looking at a concept, and I've seen a lot of these popping up with 20, 50 head per day, I don't know if those are sustainable. That's something they'll have to decide on our own. For us, the sweet spot's going to be around that 500 head per day. Uh, The efficiencies work out. It's not going to be, uh, you know, we'll never grow into one of the big four. That's not our goal. Our goal is to have five to six of these locations strategically placed throughout the United States to where we can cut out logistics. Uh, we can cut out that travel time. And we can also provide a product that gives better shelf life. 
Uh, the quicker we can get it to the retail store, the quicker we can get it to our food service customer, uh, it just gives for better shelf life and quality of product. And Jeremy, I, I wanted to ask, we talked about this on our podcast, I think yesterday, if not earlier this week, looking at um, interstate commerce, especially for some of those smaller packers. Do you know, or could you explain to us the intricacies of being able to ship locker processed beef out of state as opposed to USDA certified? Or, I mean, what, what what's the clarification there? Uh, I've always been USDA certified. I've never done just a state FDA uh, type state inspected facility. So I don't know what all they go into, but I do know that you have to be inspected by the USDA to be able to go from state to state. And Jeremy, when you look at kind of the evolution of Republic Foods, you guys started in Texas, you've moved to Missouri. How long have you guys had this plant, this facility in Missouri? Uh, we acquired it in October and we started literally in the middle of COVID. It was kind of interesting. We had to do a pivot. About Feb, it was about Feb, late February, we realized that food service was going to be um, not what we thought it was. And we had to pivot real quick to retail. The team did a great job. Uh, we weren't planning on opening as quick as we did, but we had some of our long-term customers calling us saying that we're going to need our help. And I'm just, I can't say how impressed I am with the team we have there in Missouri on how quick the sales was able to pivot, the operations was able to get up and going. And I've got to give USDA a hand because I've, a lot of people say government doesn't move fast. Well, this government did. And they did an excellent job staffing the facility and getting thing, everything ready on their end uh, for our open, which was in early March. That's fantastic. You really don't hear that very often. And I've, I guess I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper because all of us on this podcast, and I think a lot of our listeners come from the, the farming side, in particular, the animal production side. We're very sim- familiar with how you, you raise a steer, you sell them, and then they go become meat. I don't think, and this is speaking for myself, I'm not familiar with how the sales go from a plant perspective, from a company perspective. Once you guys buy the animal, you process, you, you demanufacture, as you mentioned earlier, how does your distribution work? You mentioned you had to make that pivot. Are you wholesaling and then it's, you know, white labeled product elsewhere? What's the, the marketing look like for Republic? Uh, most of our most of our product now is switching back over. We're staying to the food service side. There's still that 50% mixture with retail in there. Normally, we're going to be that style that's going to be somewhere around that 50-50 mix. When we started, we were... 90% going to retail. So we don't sell, um, I mean, for us to sell a couple of pallets of product is really unheard of. We're either selling half loads, which is around that 21,000 pounds of product to 42,000 pounds of product. And that's everything that goes out of our plant. We're not that, uh, we're not going to sell a box here, or a couple boxes there. Uh, really for us to move product, it needs to be half of a load. And typically the buyers are are either grocers or packagers of food that will be used in a food service type setting? Correct. We've been, uh, our customers, uh, we've always had our large customers uh, that are going out of state, but we've seen a large demand here in Missouri. And I think it's happening all across the United States as far as everyone looking for more local beef. So we're servicing several different grocery store chains in Missouri 
and now several different further processors that also might go to retail, but mainly food service, they're locally close to us. So it's nice because now we're not trucking that product, let's say down to Houston or over to California. Now it has uh, one to two days sitting on a truck and then it's processed, then another two days to go to its final destination to hit the end user, the consumer. Uh, now all that's happening mainly within 24 hours. We focus on fresh beef. Uh, we are not in the business of freezing anything. We do freeze some of our uh, all falls and some of our variety cuts. But every day when that animal is uh, harvested, the following day we're processing, putting it on a truck. And within several days, it's being consumed. So on that side, we're pushing more on the truckload volume and we're pushing more to consumers that can handle that. Do Especially during COVID, we had just tons of phone calls. Can I get one cow processed? Can I pick up some product? That is not our niche. That's going to be more of your 5, 10, 15 head per day locker. Okay, got it. That's good to know the difference then between your type of locker and those. Um, I do have a, a question, though. I've always been fascinated by price discovery, especially in smaller facilities like yours. Looking through the Drover's article that we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before where you're um, I'm quoted, you say that you'll pay market price that day for the cattle. So are you contracting your cattle that you're purchasing based off of the futures board, or are you doing some sort of price discovery with those retailers and end markets to decide what that cow is worth or what you're willing to pay the producer for that? Or how does that process go? Well, typically when we have a lot of buyers that are going to be in some of the livestock auctions and some of those auctions can get pretty heated and you'll get a little bit higher price coming out of those auctions. But we always give the best price when they're delivered directly to our plant. So our local uh, farmers and ranchers around us, they have the best deal. They have no logistics. They have no um, cost associated in trucking coming into our plant. They can get the best price at our doorstep. And that's determined just off the sell prices that we have in the future weeks. We're not always going to be the highest out there, but we're definitely not going to be anywhere near the lowest. We're buying good quality cows. Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of want to focus back on what you've mentioned earlier. You're you're looking at that 24-hour time from really processing to consumer. Maybe it's 48 hours before it's actually in the meats in somebody's mouth. You know, that does limit your geographic spread, but it certainly, as you've mentioned, gives you the opportunity to strategically plant these plants and facilities around the country. As you look out, as we get through COVID, fingers crossed here before too long, what does the future for Republic look like? What's the next sort of target market that you guys are setting your sights on? So before we ever opened the Lone Jack facility, we had already secured another location and are currently negotiating on another location strategically throughout the United States. Obviously, they're not going to be right next to each other. But we see ourselves having that five to six locations all working together, all having the same management style. Duplicating this will not be an issue for us. Um, and at that point, you're looking at being somewhere around 2,000, 2,500 head a day. A 500 head plant makes a little bit of an impact, but a 2,500 head company can really make a big impact. And I think that we're going to have the market advantage just being closer to the cattle supply and being closer to our end customer. 
versus having to truck the animals 700 miles just to truck the beef back to the customer another 700 miles. It doesn't happen that way all the time, but it happens more than we realize. For sure. And, you know, I, I want to come back to this issue because anytime beef gets discussed, it's always brought back to efficiency. And in, in your modeling, in your forecasts, you've got it making sense to be able to, you could, I guess my question is, can you find enough efficiencies, even in multiple plants, that, you know, either through management or through waste reduction and all those things to justify the smaller plants rather than a central location with a pile of of people and cattle coming through at once? Absolutely. And I think that it's even going to become even more apparent now that we're dealing with these different pandemics and different things that's going to be happening. The ability to social distance, the ability to actually have the team on the same page on what's safe, what is a safe environment. That's easier to do with 200 employees or 175 employees than it is with 3,000. Anybody that's ever had employees knows that you can do a better job working together with 175 or 200 teammates versus trying to get 3,000 people on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, definitely makes sense. Well, Jeremy, we certainly appreciate you joining us today. This has been really fascinating stuff. Absolutely. I appreciate you guys. And uh, if you know of any other locations or any communities that are looking for another packing house, we are still searching for those other three strategic locations. So we're open to visiting. Anybody can give us a call. They can reach us at 855-MOR-BEEF. That's 855-MOR-BEEF. Fantastic. Well, Jeremy, once again, thanks so much for joining today. I appreciate y'all. Thank y'all so much. Well, big thanks to Jeremy there from Republic Foods. It's really cool to me to see new buyers coming online, exploring new old ways to process meat and get it to the the consumer. It is super neat to see this develop. And I think it's safe to say that we could see other markets like this or other folks like this trying similar ideas. Yeah. I mean, if they find a way to make it work, no doubt they'll have competition. And that competition, I think the more buyers we can have in sale barns bidding on our animals, the better prices you're going to see out in the countryside as the market trickles profits down to producers. So stay tuned, folks. It's always darkest before the dawn. This has been a tough year for a lot of folks, particularly in the meat industry. But tough times produce tough people. And I think we're making our way to the other side of it. I think we are as well. Well, folks, if you want to get thoughts on other things that are happening in agriculture, you can find it every day on the Ag News Daily podcast. And if you've missed an episode, find it on our website. Go to agnewsdaily.com or check in with us on social media. Just search for Ag News Daily on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. With that, Ashton, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.